welcome to the latest installment of the Grant Street Experience. I'm your host, Grant Irvin, and welcome to this great, fabulous podcast. Today we have author and organizer Paul Kendrick with us, along with our fabulous co-host, Rebecca Kiernan. Rebecca, how are you doing today? Good. How are you, Grant? I'm doing great. Doing great. Good to see you. Paul, welcome to the Grant Street Experience. Thank you so much for having me. Really excited to be with my Pittsburgh friends. <laughs> so uh, just for our listeners, a uh, little bit of introduction here. Uh, Paul and I met uh, recently uh, through some work that we've done with our project, the Marshall Plan for Middle America, uh, and got introduced to his organization, Rust Belt Rising. Uh, and Paul and I had a great chat about Pittsburgh and where it sits in kind of the upper Appalachia region. Uh, and the Great Lakes, and uh, got the opportunity to connect with him and some fabulous leaders uh, from the states, our neighbors uh, in Ohio and Wisconsin, Michigan, and West Virginia a few weeks ago. Um, and so we shared an opportunity to uh, talk with each other, and uh, great to have you here, Paul, and, and learn more about your work and some of the interesting things that you're doing. Thank you so much. Well, it, you know, what you all are doing in Pittsburgh is really really incredible uh, that, you know, folks across our region really benefit from learning from, and obviously folks around the world are benefiting from learning from. So, you know, you're really showing how to create a sustainable, uh, thriving place. And uh, that's something that, that, that is very vital for us to all be able to draw understanding of. So, uh, you know, great to continue talking. Awesome. Awesome. And so we're, we're excited to have you here today uh, for a couple of reasons. One, Really wanted to uh, talk with you about uh, Rust Belt Rising and, and learn a little bit more about the organization and if you could share that with listeners, but also some of your fabulous work as an author, um, which is a, a kind of a growing theme here that Rebecca and I have had uh, on the Grant Street Experience, the opportunities to uh, just investigate and learn from local authors here in the region and uh, really interested into diving into sharing uh, with our listeners some of the stories that you've been able to to pull together. But maybe first, if you could tell a little bit about uh, the work of Rust Belt Rising and, uh, and kind of the, the interest areas that you guys have uh, in, in terms of uh, the greater region here. Yeah, Rust Belt Rising is a movement of now 470 leaders from Pennsylvania, Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, Illinois, and Indiana learning from each other and those who are making it happen, like Grant, of how we best connect with people and deliver change that benefits working families in our region. And we uh, were founded after the 2016 election, um, you know, as, as, as Democrats really saw places that we used to win, uh, that we weren't winning, and people weren't seeing how uh, what we were for uh, connected to their life or even know what we were for. And um, so it, it is a training school in the sense of the courses we do and the virtual learning we do um, and the individual support we give to emerging leaders and helping them hone their authentic message and, and vision for their place, um, but really creating a, a virtual space that allows them to learn from each other um, because we have a real interest in um, the, the, the messaging of how we can really best communicate uh, uh, so that we can uh, resonate, but, um, but behind that, the substance of how uh, we deliver change and, and in our you know, post-industrial region, um, you know, how we're helping places really turn the corner um, with the sense of kind of what's coming next for people and how 
places can have a thriving economic future um, and all the things that a family needs to flourish. And so uh, we're doing this course this spring called Building Thriving Communities, really looking at that, that, uh, you know, you were so helpful with. Um, but we'll continue looking at, you know, how we win elections um, and, uh, and and then really good approaches that we're seeing that are promising that, you know, someone in uh, Eastern Ohio can learn from someone in Western Pennsylvania, yeah. someone in Pennsylvania can learn from someone in Michigan. Um, so everything we do is free. It's a political nonprofit. And uh, it's, it's been really amazing. The the passionate leaders in communities and that all, you know, that have similar challenges of, uh, you know, some of the different cultural things happening in our region that, that have made it tough. But, you know, ultimately we want to make sure people understand what Democrats are for our narrative uh, and that we really are the party of all working people. I was going to say, what what are some of the common themes that you see? Because we're, I mean, we're, we're talking about a big area, right? Uh, you know, in terms of uh, the geographic footprint, but like, what are some of these common themes uh, and challenges that we're hearing uh, across, across state boundaries? You know, what are some of those narratives that are out there? Well, I think it is about changing the narrative to help people see the assets of our region, you know, whether it's our water, our lake, our, our universities, um, you know, just the, the talents and the hard work of, of people, the diversity, um, the, the, you know, the, the quality of life that is possible that, uh, but, but, but does take, you know, intentionality and, and, you know, the policymaking, the placemaking. Um, and as, as you, so, you know, so well articulate, you know, that our region can really be the leader in the clean energy transformation that will stop climate change. And, and we have that potential. Um, and so I think we want to always look at things from that kind of strength asset based kind of focus of, of what we have. And, and um, because I think it is really up to, uh, you know, the, the kinds of democratic leaders we work with to put forward a, a vision for the future that I think people need to have an optimism to choose us. I think Trumpism has, has thrived in places in our region where, um, you know, that a certain pessimism can set in and be cultivated by some, yeah. you know, bad actors. Um, uh, but but we want to really see what's possible and give people uh, the, the realistic sense uh, of uh, that, that allows, you know, for that hope of, of what can come in the places that we love. So I think being able to communicate to really lead with our values and our stories uh, to connect with people, to be able to effectively persuade is the challenge you have in a lot of communities. Um, but but when you can do that, and, and we do see examples of it, when, when there is that trust between, you know, the vote of the leader, when people are working together on solving problems um, locally, then um, you do really have a chance to, to make the kinds of, you know, exciting uh, beneficial policies, you know, that, that someone like you is doing in, in, in Pittsburgh. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, Rebecca, uh, through the work that we did uh, through the 100 Resilient Cities Initiative a few years back, there was these these common themes, uh, or we, we call them kind of the tectonic plates of globalization, urbanization, and climate change. You know, so these kind of three things that all cities around the world are are facing, um, whether it's you know the the issues of climate, whether that's you know adapting to a new reality or kind of the needs to mitigate the impacts of CO two or or urbanization challenges, whether that's people expanding kind of the urban footprint or you know, moving into urbanized areas. But you were interested too in this issue of globalization, um, like through the pandemic. I mean, any thoughts or questions that you have in that space? 
Yeah, I feel like um, when we were going through that process, it was pretty nebulous, like at the time back in 2015, like what what really is the impact of globalization, like climate change, you kind of know, you know, we're going to get warmer and wetter urbanization, you know, we might have X population influx, but like globalization was like, well, maybe we'll lose jobs or, you know, we're more connected and we'll be able to um, learn from other cities or whatever. But like in, in 2020 and 2021, you've kind of had this explosion of like a cross, you know, like a worldwide and like across the nation, it's all the same themes that are playing out in, um, in our cities, uh, whether, you know, the issue is concentrated there or not. Um, so I, I, I guess I'm curious, Paul, like what, have you seen themes and like how in 2020 and 2021 has like some of the main issues changed um, and, and how, how, are, how is your organization dealing with it? Um, it feels like everything's happened very rapidly. Um, yeah. but I guess I'm, I'm just curious about how that's impacted your work and, and how other cities might be dealing with it or other municipalities. It's a heck of a question. Uh, so let me, let, me, let me try to do my best answer, but I think that in this globalized moment, uh, we have to understand that in our region, uh, our, our jobs can move everywhere. Southern states have been trying to take them places around the world, to, you, know, play, you know, players can go everywhere. And, and so um, I, I think uh, coming out of the 2016 election and then even seeing it in the 2020 down ballot, I think a lot of people uh, did not fully trust Democrats with their bottom line um, and did not uh, fully believe like we're the party focused on like, the good jobs for them. Um, and, and, and so that's happening in this context where there are a lot of communities, you know, all medium sized, you know, former manufacturing places, um, you know, working class places, like to some extent rural places, like there are different kinds of places that have experienced job loss. And so they've like having this lived experience um, and then um, not really buying that, um, even though I, I believe it to be true that the, the, the person with the D next to their name on the ballot is, is the one focused on um, making sure that, that their, you know, that their bottom line is proving that they have good jobs, good wages. So I think what's happening right now is I, I think we have a real opportunity where president Biden has, is, is very focused on jobs is very much defining us as a party who cares about jobs, about climate change uh, and, and defining climate change is about good jobs and, and the opportunity there. Um, but we're, we're focused on jobs we're focused on good wages. And, um, but then I think what differentiates us from Republicans is, um, with all the things people need to thrive, whether that's taking on equality and, and, and civil rights to make sure, um, you know, we are a just, uh, you know, equitable country, you know, thinking about the things a family needs, like child care and, um, you know, and uh, affordable, uh, you know, higher education without, you know, all this debt and, um, and, and a, you know, decent retirement and uh, getting down healthcare costs. So, so I think we have, and people like that, uh, when they, when they think about the things that they do like about Democrats, it, they do want those things for their family. And so, um, but I do think that, but they have to see them as married to the, 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 you know, fundamentally like a path to a good job, you know, with, with skills they have uh, to build on and a career doing that. And so um, all of that is key because all around the world, we do see, um, you know, a populist right rising when, um, 
in particular folks are just not seeing the, the economic future for themselves uh, that is going to improve their families' well-being. Obviously, this kind of nationalist, populist kind of um, politics capitalizes on that and, and mixes in all these grievances and racial resentments and different things. But, you know, the, but, but the, often that element is, is part of the, the nebulous there. So I, so I do think it is important for us uh, to really put forward that economic vision and deliver on it and, and have the results so people's lives are meaningfully improving and, and, and that, the, that there can be a certain uh, optimism that inoculates uh, hopefully enough people um, against those uh, and, 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 but we, we, again, do have to tell a story about, about our, the, the values of our community that people share, um, and, and the challenges that, you know, as a candidate has overcome and, and, and the, um, the things that are working against this and, and tell this, make sure to tell the accurate story of, you know, how the Wall Street and out-of-state corporations and, and, and the special interests have put these barriers in place because we know this populist right around the world is going to tell the story about immigrants right. and it's going to lie and blood libel them. So I think we have to have a story of, uh, that is the real one of, of a vision for the future um, and what we're up against who's trying to divide us and but using the values of our community, how we can come together and take action and win for all of our families. Have have you seen, you know, given like these these tectonic plates that we talked about, right? Like globalization, yeah. urbanization, and climate, like have have you what has the impact of these issues at the local level been because of the pandemic? Like have it have you seen in in kind of your conversations with communities across the region? Um, an acceleration of issues or like what what is the impact or your sense been because of the pandemic on these challenges? One thing I heard from uh, state representative candidates in Michigan and Ohio um, and Western Pennsylvania who did not win uh, and did not do as well as we hoped they would do is they did say, you know, I I heard people saying, you know, Democrats just want to keep us on lockdown and, you know, and not let us work. And um, and that's a tough thing because there are a lot of because Democratic leaders uh, who are, you know, uh, in the governorships of, of some of these states are doing the right thing, doing their best, you know, in good faith to try to figure out the right balance of keeping people yeah. safe, helping us survive, you know, keeping us alive during this thing. Um, and you know, but but also thinking about small business. But but I think we really got hit with a sense of we're against small business, we're against workers, and and that's just that's just a tough that's just a tough thing. And but I but I really you know admire the decisions, the, the hard hard decisions that a lot of these right. leaders had to make. Um, I just think so. But going forward, as we're coming out of this pandemic, I, I do think it's really really important, you know, for uh, our party to be able to be you know the party of Main Street businesses um, up against you know, these out-of-state corporations, you know, these venture capital, you know, things that are, you know, hurt, you know, hurting, uh, you know, that the, the, the local company that's been employing people for all this time, I, you know, and, and, and so um, that's not always um, how Democrats talk. And, and so I just think that's really important to understand that, you know, we're the party of, of working people, working families, main street businesses, folks trying to grow a business, like, you know, that, that is all a part of what, will allow our town uh, to, to really thrive. Right. Um, and so I think, I think that's really key. I, you know, I, I don't know how much the climate change piece um, 
factored uh, against us in the election in any way. And I think it's more just a positive of young people help bring particularly young people like understand the stakes of the election. And it's clear like we're the party trying to, you know, take on this challenge uh, and the other party like just doesn't even believe in it. So, you know, I, I but I think we really have a moment of opportunity that we don't know how long it'll last, when it'll come again. We just like really have to deliver on, uh, you know, I think in this infrastructure package uh, on things that uh, are going to allow America to confront this existential challenge. Uh, But, but I love the framing of it in jobs and then obviously state and local leaders um, and, you know, and you're a great guide on how to do this have to find um, smart ways that are there that, that, you know, every community, every state can be, and be taking action and doing things and making their policies, uh, putting us in a, a more sustainable place. Uh, but 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 ideally that we can really lead on this. Do you see that um, in the, the space, I'm, I'm sure there's other types of regional, similar types of regional organizations to yours. Um, you know, the issue of jobs and climate in particular in this and, and connected to really the globalization connection is, is integrated. And, and like, that's one of the things that, you know, we've seen through the, the development of the Marshall Plan for Middle America concept is that by bringing those two together, you start to see what the opportunity that the future could bring, right? Does that resonate in other other regions beyond kind of the, the Great Lakes and Upper Appalachia? Or um, I don't know if you've seen anything in, you know, other parts of the country. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I think that... Um... You know, and it's like, I, I could be wrong on this, but I think to some extent, like on the West Coast and like in New England, you can just say like, we're doing this to stop climate change. <laughs> and like, and the people are like, yes, like that's what we want. I, I do wonder if, but I, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure, but, um, but I think uh, wherever you are, but particularly in our region, I think uh, when you, when you lead with the, very tangible things that people can see that's what puts you in the best position like if we start with talking about like clean water and like making sure that our our water is clean like everyone agrees with that and so we need not get into the way that um environmental policies have gotten kind of um commandeered into the culture wars and uh, you know it's the elites first you know the the hard work for people that might lose their jobs and stuff you know but but if like let's let's not uh, reinforce those that kind of narrative around division. Like, let's focus on things we all want and and problem solving. Um, yep. You know, and uh, it's uh, I was just talking with this amazing guy Matt Russell, a farmer in Iowa, who's just who's talked who um, is just incredible with with just changing the way we organize. And we need to come to farmers and help. Like, let's solve this problem together. What would it take? You know, for, what would be you know for for you to be doing these different. Uh, farming, uh, you know, strategies that would uh, be, be, you know, best for our admissions and environment. And, and, you know, and then for the farmers, it would be about, okay, well, you know, if you'd pay me to, you know, if, if, if the incentives were set up to, to do those things, I would do them, you know, right. but, but we often come with like the policy and like we have the solution where I think ultimately change comes when you have a conversation with people, you listen, you really try to understand um why you know they think the thing is what they think and then and then inviting them in together that like how do we solve these problems so i think that's really important um when you are talking about kind of i guess persuasion communities where they're um 
you know, is not as much if you just said like, do you support the Green Deal? But it's not a new deal. It's not about like folks that might just say like, yes. Whereas, I don't know, maybe if you're doing politics in California or, um, you know, Massachusetts that, you know, people would just say like, I, I just want to stop the threat of climate change, but I'm not exactly sure. It's those issues that are like all, all politics is local, right? Like you have to yeah. boil down the message for the people that you're working with, right? Yeah, yeah. And and I think, and then with clean energy, being able to show examples like, oh, you know, well, this thing over here, you know, that the, the, we got, you know, people are getting these good jobs on this, you know, you know, wind turbines or solar installation, like, so, you know, why don't we double that? And let's, let's have a hundred more good jobs doing that. You know, I just think it, it can't be this like futuristic stuff that people are just like ultimately kind of skeptical of like, what does that mean for me? Like, it just has to be really tangible. Um, and so I think as, as leaders, it's, you know, we have to like challenge ourselves to not just lead with the things that are persuasive to us. We're already yeah. persuaded, but like, but like really think about and listen to what someone else wants uh, and, and then be like, you know, really getting it across. And, and then I think we can talk about, you know, future generations and how, you know, our traditions and the land we love and the water we love, you know, how, how you know, that will be there for our future generations. Um, I, I, I really do believe is resonant. Um, we, we just got to, yeah, keep everything local. Right. Rebecca, you've, you've seen some of this with, with some of our work with, uh, in terms of that, that we'll call it the, the environmental workforce, right? Whether it's with the, you know, the Hazelwood Greenway project or um, even in some of the urban agriculture spaces. Um, we've had some conversations the past couple of days about how we can bring resources back or, or not just back, but into the region um, as part of like urban forest reclamation and, and, and you know, things in that space. I mean, what, what are some of the areas that you feel that you know, investment can really catalyze that next generation workforce? Um, I mean, though, so like uh, Paul had said in the beginning, uh, some of the things that I think resonate the most are those like community assets. Um, so that's what we've been focusing on in, in the Hazelwood project, um, in the Hazelwood Greenway project. So we have these, uh, just, you know, for a quick background, we have these large spaces that are called greenways. Um, they're usually along steep hillsides. They've been unmanaged for uh, 40 or 50 years since the 80s. Um, but uh, we're trying to, to find some funding and, and the partnerships and the community-driven planning to um, turn them into community assets instead of liabilities. Um, so I think this is like a weird sweet spot where um, from the city's perspective, we've noticed um, in recent years, you know, we are experiencing uh, the impacts of climate change. We've been warmer and wetter. Um, we're having extreme highs and extreme lows. That's kind of wreaking havoc on a lot of our infrastructure, but um, our hillsides are also slipping. Um, so in order to kind of get a hold on some of these large tracts of land that are now being swallowed by invasive species and vines and um, don't probably have much more longevity without some sort of, you know, an intervention um, and some maintenance. Um, there, yeah, there, so there seems to be a sweet spot where, you know, you get the community really engaged in, in turning this, at, this into an asset in a community mm -hmm. space, um, with trail building or, um, you know, thinking about that, that specific location. Um, but then it also has that co-benefit of, you know, being resilient or being or adapting it to um, the environmental impacts that we're already seeing, the weather changes, et cetera. You know, you've seen stuff uh, just through like our Marshall Plan project. We've had, uh, you know, the opportunity to work with a number of 
uh, different cities throughout the region. One in particular that comes to mind is the city of Athens in, in southeastern Ohio, the home of Ohio University. And you know, Mayor Patterson there always talks about the, you know, the environment as an asset to the ability to reclaim the workforce. Um, and it's, I think it's really true across the region where you know, these ideas of reclamation um, and kind of retaking nature as an opportunity to rebuild back um, could create a lot of great jobs for people, um, mm -hmm. as well as kind of sustainable careers if we're able to reposition it. You know, Paul, one, one of the things that um, it, when we first uh, met each other, we learned that you're, you're a noted author. And, and, you know, one of the things I think that's really fabulous about kind of your work is the, the thread of, of social justice kind of uh, runs through you literally. Um, and I was wondering if you might be able to kind of, uh, you know, share a little bit about kind of the, 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 three, the three novels that you've written, um, Sarah's Long Walk, Douglas and Lincoln, and then Nine Days uh, about uh, Martin Luther King's life. Um, you know, first off though, I got maybe a good place to start for folks in two of those three, I think your dad is your co-author, is that right? All three, all three. All three. Yeah, yeah. So we're, we've been real partners in this this whole. Uh, can you can trilogy. you talk a little, a little about uh, a what's it like to work with your dad? He must be a pretty terrific guy. Um, and then uh, also, you know that that theme. Why is that theme so important to you and your work? Yeah. Well, um, the theme is really interracial collaboration in American history. And we, we didn't set out to, to write this trilogy in a sense, but the stories I guess we were drawn to um, really are, are stories that um, about people across racial lines um, working together in some way and, and not in like, uh, and we don't do this in a Pollyannish Star Ed way, but like in the complexities, uh, uh, the things we get wrong, the things we get right, but the, but um, but ultimately, I think they are kind of hopeful examples that we ought to um, to learn from, um, and and in in these most recent two, also in the activist and politician relationship, mm -hmm. um, you know, whether it's Martin Luther King and and. John Kennedy in Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln. And so, you know, that adds a, another layer of, of challenge, but, but that we, you know, in, in looking at activists that, um, that we ought to, you know, go back to and better understand uh, that could help us find a way forward today, but also in like courageous political leadership. So, um, but we work really well together, my father. I mean, some people would say, oh, I couldn't, you know, bear to have my parents look at a paper in high school. It's just like, you know, uh, just, just painful. Um, but we kind of have no ego and a good collaboration. I love uh, kind of digging into the, the research to um, tell history in a very vivid way. That You know, these are nonfiction. It's all based on extensive research, but so that you as a reader can have an almost novelistic experience. I love history like that, um, where, you know, we have a lot of research discoveries, but uh, so you are learning a lot about these like threads and, you know, American history and, and, uh, and, and these monumental figures that hopefully we are humanizing to you. And, um, and, and that's what folks have said. And, um, but that, um, but 
we're paying attention to good narrative um, and particularly in this most recent one, nine days where um, it is, you know, I think pretty like thrilling and suspenseful um, and absorbing. Um, and we worked very hard to think about the structure and, and you know, it took years of editing and, 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 and honing down um, to, to give you an exciting reading experience while you're learning some, some really important history. And so, um, uh, and yeah, so we got interested in this because we, we got interested with Sarah's Long Walk in um, a civil rights case that happened in Boston before the Civil War. Um, that like was 18, like the first 40s, 18, yeah, 40s and 50s uh, that was about a struggle for equal uh, schools to desegregate schools before the Civil War, while so slavery, you know, existed in, in half the country. Um, and uh, but it was the beginning of the hundred year road to, for, to Brown versus the Board of Education. But because a 23 year old black lawyer named Robert Morris had uh, um, taken the case of a five year old black girl, Sarah Roberts, who had to walk past five white schools. And so with a uh, white lawyer named Charles Sumner, who went on to become a famous senator, uh, they brought this case. So that that was an amazing story that we wanted to tell. And then that kind of led to this telling the Civil War through Frederick Douglass's eyes and how the Civil War became about freedom with black soldiers fighting um, because of the, the vision and the dedicated activism of Douglass and how Lincoln um, was, uh, was ultimately able to listen and, uh, and ultimately able to, with impeccable political timing and, and, and skill, um, you know, in slavery, you know, through the constitutionally, uh, but as, but Douglas had had the vision of black men fighting and, and they really had ended slavery by, uh, you know, running from enslavement and joining a union army that was pretty revolutionary. And so that was Douglas Lincoln. And then uh, nine days, the race to save Martin Luther King's life and win the 1960 election is about an arrest of Dr. King, a young Dr. King, three weeks before the 1960 election and uh, how his life was imperiled uh, during his first overnight imprisonment of his life uh, during a harrowing nine days uh, as he was sent to a rural Georgia prison uh, after doing this sit-in with black student activists that really challenged him to go to jail for the first time. So that would change the course of his life and his activism that allowed him to go on and change America. But it's about uh, why uh, Kennedy, the Kennedy campaign ended up uh, speaking up for King and helping get him out and why Nixon's campaign didn't at a moment when the black vote was really up for grabs in America. And so it tells the story of an interracial team that was working on civil rights for the Kennedy campaign and uh, how they uh, would kind of go rogue to uh, not only uh, intervene in this King case, um, but then work to swing the black vote to make the crucial difference in this narrowly, narrowly close election, uh, uh, but ultimately to give us the, the politics we have today, as well as why the decisions Nixon made uh, are, are the other part of why we have the politics we have today. That's fascinating. Now, when, when you guys, uh, can, did you conceptualize this as a trilogy or have they been cumulative as no. you've started to research. Yeah, it just worked out that way, but it sounds cool to say trilogy, but it's just, <laughs> we, you know, fall in love with the story. Um, and, uh, and, but there and, is a, there is an interwoven part of the narrative, right? Like that's what's kind of fascinating about it. Yeah, yeah, there, there really is. And, and we love, you know, those who are thoughtful about change today, uh, reading these stories and then, and then it helps us, I think with new eyes, you know, See what's going on today and, and, and understanding the relevance. Uh, and, and people have, you know, with nine days in particular, just given 
me really, I, I think, very insightful thoughts that that made them have about, you know, our politics today and, and, and the activism, you know, and, and how, you know, we are, you know, in, in the move, this time of the movement for Black Lives, you know, how we are uh, you know, fighting for justice together and but also, you know, the, the appeals that both parties make and, and, uh, yeah. um, and you know, and, and uh, what works in politics and why uh, John Kennedy calling Coretta King and, uh, and Bobby Kennedy calling this judge, um, you know, why those ended up being uh, really resonant. And so there's, there's a lot to be, to be gained. And, and, and I think for me, almost more than anything else, yeah, just really uh, learning about these characters who I got to know, uh, the survivors of it, of, of this Atlanta student movement, uh, the sit-in movement and how brilliant they were in interjecting their issue into this campaign and forcing politicians to, uh, and, and the public to grapple with the uh, injustices that, that we may want to ignore and just kind of to not focus in on and not address, but, but really make people have to grapple with that. And, um, and yeah, and how Dr. King became the king that we know. So, um, but to your question, there, more than a decade separated this book from the second book. So it was a matter of um, kind of waiting for, uh, you know, a story to, I mean, writing a book is so hard. It takes so much work that, you know, you really have to feel, uh, oh, this, I love this story so much. It, it just <laughs> inherently uh, gets across a lot that I care about it as characters that, and, and, you know, we wanted to, four or five of the, the people that we, you know, spent time with have passed away since, you know, so we really wanted to like record these stories and, uh, and, and tell this, um, so, you know, it, 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 it kind of fit the values and passions we have just, just like the story as is doesn't need any, you know, manipulating to do that. But, um, but that was, uh, what we thought, you know, this is a story that has to be told, it will inspire people and luckily it has. Um, and, uh, but the, but the immediate impetus was, um, a former Senator of your state because I was introduced to Harris Wofford, Harris um, who is, Yeah. Quick, was, um, quick, quick piece on that is that I, I yeah. uh, this is like six degrees of separation. I used to work with Harris's son Dan. Um, awesome. So Dan Dan Wofford and I used to work together. So it's like six he's degrees. Such a kind man. Pretty tight state. Well, he's been a great champion um, for the book and and really appreciate it. And and just so all the Woffords are such just nice people and and. Um, yeah, so that's 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 cool. So that yeah, I figured the, anyone who's involved in Pennsylvania politics would have encountered a <laughs> Wofford, uh, um, Dan or Harris. But um, but yeah, but Harris was a had been uh, a friend and advisor of Dr. King, and then was working on the Kennedy campaign. Um, but because he had this association with King um, as this you know rare white uh, advisor who you know had gone to Howard Law School, was passionate about nonviolence, heard about this minister doing it befriended King was very helpful to King and um, but then he's working on the Kennedy campaign and his friends in jail and and he realized what am I doing I got to help get him out and and, and he kind of ambles into uh, uh, you know ultimately that he and his his teammate who was a, a black journalist from Chicago named Louis Martin um, and and then the, their boss Sergeant Shriver you know the three of them kind of mm -hmm. end up being mavericks on the campaign uh, for for what they end up doing but I, I was introduced to Harris because someone knew as passionate about civil rights and was like oh you love talking to Harris and he's such a you know a kind man and um but uh yeah but my father um was like you know that's just it's really a story that ought to be a full book like the the, the you know yeah. the the story of these last days of the campaign and 
And, um, and so the, the time I spent with Harris was really precious. And, you know, because for Harris, like we grew up with, you know, Dr. King and monuments and then uh, footage that's, you know, black and white, that seems like from a long time ago, but, you know, Dr. King was his friend. Kennedy was, you know, he knew the Kennedys well, you know, and so these, so he helped us um, again, see these uh, figures in, in as young men making fast decisions that would end up defining history. And, and he misses his, he missed his friends. And, you know, he, he passed away uh, two years ago, getting near two years now. Um, but so I, I felt very lucky to spend a lot of time with him. And then also uh, with the, uh, veterans of the of the Atlanta student movement uh, who helped who you know went to jail with King and and you know had uh, gotten King to take this uh, really um, risky bold leap into uh, going into you know a southern jail and doing an imprisonment and so uh, very special but Harris was an incredible man I wish he could have been a senator from Pennsylvania for longer but uh, <laughs> but he did so much good in his life I mean it's like just one of the most amazing American lives of all the the different uh, things he did throughout it. He's one of those people that you look at the the resume and you're like, how how did you have all the time to do this? Like that's the <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, yeah. Him and Shriver found the Peace Corps and then you know later AmeriCorps. So he has this whole national service thing, but then you know the yep. center was like ran on uh universal health care and, and really showed the electoral power of that and um yeah, had been like a college president. I mean, he just really, I, some some of the ones that they called him like the, like Forrest Gump of social change. Like he just kept <laughs> like showing up, but but he had a real instinct, I think, for what was coming next and and when history might be opening up. And and again, to 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 hear about this young minister in Montgomery and just start writing him letters, um, you know, I think fundamentally uh, you know, Harris was uh, he was. Uh, willing always to like sacrifice his own career to do what was right and 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 to speak up for the right causes and that's something we can learn from and he just was unafraid to just get in there and just 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 take action and 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 uh, you know he marches in selma um on the, the the march to montgomery so you know all of that i think is, is just i think a real model for all of us that we come up with a lot of reasons not to act and like you know harris just always uh just you know got in the mix and and, and found ways to be helpful and supportive and, and valuable right you know one of the things too you mentioned is this the idea of the interrelationship between activists and politicians you know whether that's in the the 1860s or the 1960s, how, how does that, how do you think that starts to interplay in today's world? You know, and um, kind of yeah. both of you, I guess, you know, we're, we've lived yeah. through this time, um, you know, Rebecca, I'd be interested in kind of your insights too, is like, you know, we're living through this time where all of these underlying stressors, um, you know, some of which we've talked about early on in our conversation, um, have really been uh, uncovered is not the word. We've known that they've been there, but the, the, the pandemic has amplified them, right? Where everyone has like a heightened sense of, of, of what the issues are, their awareness of them, and they're playing out so fast and in real time. And I don't know, you know, maybe Rebecca, start with you. Like, what are some of your thoughts in terms of that activist politics kind of and not just politics, but policy, like, you know, how do we take kind of that activism and turning it into meaningful change? Um, be interested in your guys' thoughts on that. Yeah, I can start. That's a tough, that's a good question. Um, 
I mean, just just from being a city employee and like, you know, working in, in the middle of it, uh, we, you know, we had started working on this, all this resilience stuff uh, in 2015, which was like a couple of years ahead. And I feel like a lot of what we were starting to, I mean, everything was bu bubbled to the surface in 2020, right? But like, uh, I, don't, I don't think that all of those issues were necessarily measured or out in the forefront yet. Um, so, I mean, when we uh, were, were working on, these, on all these plans and analyses, um, developing our shocks and stresses profiles, like this was all new, but it was only, you know, a couple of years ago. Um, I feel like now uh, that it's, it's more widely recognized um, that a lot of our plans were right. Um, and as we kept releasing reports, I feel like that they caught on more. Um, and I, I almost feel like uh, as people um, started to catch on, like government was slightly ahead in identifying the, the stresses that, that ultimately came to a head in 2020. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, as, as, you know, it's, it's, re it's, it's hurting people, uh, you know, myself included, everybody, right? Um, mm -hmm. that's, that's been targeted at politicians, right? Like there's, there's a blame there's a, a system that's been happening for, you know, hundreds of years. And when you get to 2015 and you start to recognize, you know, where all the detangling needs to happen within our, our processes to address, you know, the inequities and the climate change and the, all the systems that have led us to this point, um, mm -hmm. it takes a long time. So I, I think, you know, just, just thinking about the work that Paul does and, and the messaging, it's been really difficult to um, explain that this is a, it's a long game. Yeah. Uh, and that like everything that's, that's now at the surface is, is, you know, hard for government to detangle and hard for, you know, people to handle. And I think that, you know, we're all marching together and like trying to figure out how to address it, but, um, it's all, it's all new and it's all uncovered, I guess. I don't know if that answered. Yeah. But it, I mean, it's, it, it, it's, no, yeah. Fixes, right. And it's kind of that there was a lot of the work and not just this isn't just Pittsburgh, but, you know, any city that has done a resilience strategy, a climate plan, a social equity strategy, like they're very particularly pre 2020, they seem to be very prescient. Right. Like yeah. that, that, you know, these things are happening, being identified, people are working, but also like it almost seems as if the you know, the rate of change uh, is unable to meet the, the, the moment. Like we, we systems don't move as fast as yep. change is required. Right? Yeah. Um, I mean, is yeah. that, is that some of the same case in like the 1860s in the Lincoln Douglas example, or in the, you know, you know, we talk about like Harris Wofford and Kennedy and, uh, and Dr. King, like, you know, monumental things happen, but they just don't happen overnight. Right. No, but uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, and these were, you know, monumental things of, you know, ending slavery of, of uh, you know, getting to civil rights legislation. Um, but I can only imagine the, the impatience and the urgency and, you know, for Douglas seeing the civil war was this opportunity. It could evolve into this, but like, what if it didn't? And the opportunity of his life was missed. And so yeah. he was really pushing, 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 um, uh, you know, obviously, it's, you know, every day is a... Um, you know, lives are lost and and uh, and and immeasurable you know damage uh, done by people that you know for people that are not 
free. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and, and same thing, you know, kind of playing out in the civil rights movement um, to not have rights. Um, so, I, but so I think the theme that, that is both about effective work across racial lines and about politicians and activists is ultimately like genuine listening um, is, is really needed. And, um, and, and I think everyone says that like listening just sounds fine, but like, uh, are you actually like willing to, in very consequential moments, trust, you know, lived experience um, uh, that, uh, you know, of, of, that are not, that, that comes from those who have different experiences than you and, and uh, you know, and, and, and a sense of what needs to be done that might not have been kind of your own go-to or certainly may not be safe um, politically. And so, I, you know, with, with Lincoln able to ultimately listen to Douglas and get behind black troops and, uh, um, and uh, with, you know, Kennedy listening to his civil rights staffers to some extent, even though they nearly essentially do get, well, you have to read the book, but they, they, they very nearly get fired essentially. And, uh, and, and then end up doing some things that he, they don't even tell him they do, but, um, but, you know, but he does call Coretta King, um, you know, based on this idea that comes with, and, and, uh, and Nixon doesn't, despite that Nixon had black activists, uh, well, black staffers uh, who are also activists like Jackie Robinson telling him, you know, the same advice, but, um, but he, you know, makes that different calculation. And um, so, so the listening is key. And then I think for the politician, um, but being able to bring the public along so that these changes can stick so that you can actually make them happen that, you know, yeah. the politician has to have some skill in, in, in timing and persuasion and communication. And then the activists have to have the skill that you really see in the genius of the moral theater that King creates in places, goes on to create that in places like Birmingham once he was, you know, uh, he was unafraid to stare down death and, and, and create this activism that was, um, that did change a lot of hearts and minds. And so, you know, that, so he's creating the change in the public will that creates the change in the public will. And he is thinking about, um, yeah, how do I bring more people along to my side? How do I, you know, set up the situation to make people feel, you know what, that's wrong, what's going on. You know, I, I want a, a change, you know, for what's right. And, uh, and the sit-ins, these college students, um, you know, at these lunch counters getting taken off to jail, um, the, the, the situations King uh, and, and others and leaders in the civil rights movement create um, were super effective in, and also just convincing, showing people the urgency of the problem um, and that this can't be put off. It's not a minor thing. And, and uh, you know, that's borne out in a lot of data that, you know, it took people to, to seeing it as uh, something that needs to be addressed. So, so the activists, you know, we have to move people along and, and, you know, we can do that in our daily life too, just in, you know, conversations and, you know, and Facebook posts and, you know, one thing at a time. And, but, uh, but also obviously in, you know, showing up and marching and, you know, finding different ways and talking to, you know, our political officials. And, um, and so we have to create that context so that politicians can do yeah. the bolder thing, but yeah, but we want, and then, so I think we see in the, this past election, you know, Biden, uh, I think, did impress a lot of people in really listening uh, to Black Lives Matter activists, to you know uh, Sunrise Movement, and, you know, and climate activists, and um, you know bringing them to the table for solutions, like you know making a call to um, you know Jacob Blake's family in Kenosha. I mean, yeah. you know, he was willing to show up, and um, but and but you know, but things have to be delivered on, or you know, trust is lost, and so he has to you know find ways to move things forward. And and then I think just last thought on organized on activism is like 
in Georgia, you really see the power of organizing it and, and that part of activism of, of doing the work uh, to, you know, um, the activism shows the stakes of the election and, and can clarify where the politicians stand. Um, but, you know, but, but long-term change, and I think this is instructive for our region, you know, can come about through, you know, a dedicated uh, vision uh, and strategy in, in the organizing, um, uh, you know, uh, around things that, we, you know, people want together and taking action together. And, um, you know, in Georgia, that ended up meaning electing the, the, the present-day minister of Dr. King's church to the Senate, and uh, uh, along with, you know, a, a Jewish-American uh, senator, young senator, Nassab. And so, you know, that's a pretty hopeful thing uh, in this state that this our story was set in, uh, quite an amazing coda that shows what's, what's possible, but uh, we'll, we'll need to protect that and, and, uh, and, and keep making that kind of change in other places. And we'll see what the next chapters bring, right? Um, yeah. So... Just want to say, politicians in there. you know, just to kind of uh, wrap it up here, coming up against time, um, you know, and I, I would be remiss to not ask this question with an author. So Rebecca and I always like to talk with guests about uh, what you're reading, what you're watching or what you're listening to. And so I would imagine there's a couple of good choices right behind you there. Um, but uh, Paul, what's what what's on your uh What's on your reading list right now, or or do you have a, another book in mind? That's another good question for you. What, what's mm. coming up for you? Um, excited to read uh, the uh, someone I interviewed for the book um, who was who went was a he had just gotten to campus and said you know said okay I'll, I'll do the sit in and go to jail with you all just just so brave as an eighteen year old of you know parents saved up had the dream send you to college uh, and then you go to jail. Uh, immediately, you know, for, for, for freedom and civil rights, named Charles Person, really kind man. He, his memoirs are just published. Um, and so I'm really excited to read it. It's called The Bus Is Coming um, because he was the, then the youngest freedom writer. So he did this first imprisonment during the events of nine days. Uh, and then, and then uh, pretty soon after the next year, uh, put stand up. And so he's the last surviving freedom writer who went from Washington all the way to New Orleans. And so uh, it's an important testament. So uh, that's what I'm reading and uh, recommend to others. Um, and um, yeah, and, and my father and I are, are not sure yet what we write next, but, uh, but one thing we would love to write about and are putting some ideas together on um, is Lafayette Square um, and how I, I think um, illustrative of the, uh, the long struggle in America between, you know, multiracial coalitions, you know, protesting for justice and, uh, you know, white supremacy within, you know, using government means, uh, how it all collides on that day uh, last spring um, when, you know, nonviolent Black Lives Matter protesters are met uh, with, with violence by, uh, you know, Trump's uh, forces. And, um, and I think it was a really, like, Defining moment, pivotal moment, defining moment in in that election um, that showed you know uh, you know that Trump was not going to rise to the occasion uh, leadership wise to bring people together um, and uh, and I think that you know the movement really uh, helped. yeah really did clarify the stakes for a lot of people but but it, but you know but it would ultimately be a, a larger book in the sense of, you know, about American protest. And, um, and uh, so I think in a, that could kind of continue our themes, but we'll, we'll, we'll see. Um, uh, so, but that, that would be, uh, that is our next idea.
start start taking notes now, right? Yeah, exactly. And uh, talking to friends that were there and stuff. So uh, yeah, Lafayette Square would, would be the next idea. But um, we'll see, you know, it takes such such a lot of time to write a book. We poured so much uh, you know, <laughs> interviews and, and research in the you know local papers and the oral histories in 1960 uh, to write nine days. Um, right now, it's, it's great to focus on um, Rust Belt Rising. And, uh, you know, we really welcome everyone to, you know, sign up to get our invites to our sessions, join us, you know, utilize our resources. Um, because we'll, you know, we'll, we'll help people run for office or, or be effective on, on behalf of those who are running and, and, and you know, the activism uh, that, you know, folks are doing locally around our region. And so, you know, folks should go to RustBeltRising.com, sign up. Again, it's all free and uh, we love to help people. And so for me, I, I'm really enjoying, you know, as we're building for 2022 and local elections that are happening even sooner, um, it's great of, you know, helping, uh, again, you know, really authentic candidates in our region um, run for office. So in, enjoying that and enjoying people getting to talk about nine days and, and really uh, the reaction to the book has been really heartening. And so I, I hope uh, people will continue to, uh, to pick it up because uh, folks enjoy reading it. Awesome. Thanks, Paul. Rebecca, quickly, how, how about you? What's, uh, what are you consuming right now? Uh, I am trying to spend as much time outside as possible, so I don't even have a good answer. But <laughs> an identifying, oh, I'm a plant identification books, maybe. What, weren't you doing some mushroom hunting, though? Yep. Yeah, it's mushroom season. I found a few morels, if you're familiar oh. with those. Pen yeah. You know, Pennsylvania is like the mushroom capital of, uh, I think, the country. Yeah. 90% of all mushrooms are produced in Chester County, I believe. Yeah. Wow. I had no idea. Yeah. What Now, what are you going to do with the morels? What's the... Well, I already ate them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, how did you prepare them? Like, what did you... Uh, to saute them. To saute them? Just yeah, like... I was real excited. I've never found them before. So this is the first year I actually got a couple. So you just a uh, little olive oil, salt, mm -hmm. pepper? Or, okay. Yeah, or butter or whatever. And just Garlic. use it as a side or? Yeah, depends on how many you have, I guess. Okay. All right. Yeah. Have you found any more of those chicken of the woods? Uh, I have a freezer full from last year. They typically, the, each each of them has a season, right? So morels come first and then there's a, I think there's a first flush of chicken of the woods in the, in early summer. And then there's another flush in late summer or early fall. Hold on, that's like a whole new term for me. A flush. A flush. I might have made that up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like a, a flock of birds. You have a flush of mushrooms. Is that is that yeah, like I guess a, so. Is that a thing? <laughs> All right. Maybe. I'm gonna go look that up. That's yeah, funny. I don't don't hold me to that. I might uh <laughs> I totally believe you. If not, maybe it will be, it'll start to catch on. So, well, hey, I just finished uh, on your recommendation, David Attenborough's uh, mission yeah. witness statement that's on Netflix. Paul, to if you haven't seen it, to totally recommend it. Um, awesome. If, uh, if you're familiar with Sir David's work, um, it is, you know, basically kind of the arc of his life. Um, and how he is, you know, experienced kind of, you know, in real, real lifetime, kind of our changing climate, the impact on the population. Oh, and great. It's, it's, really uh, yeah, super well done. Great oh. cinematography. Um, really nice, really nice. So. Great. I mean, there were some great movies this year. I loved 
Judas and the Black Messiah, that was a great one. Sound of Metal, um, One Night in Miami, uh, White Tiger, um, what else? Uh, Minari. Um, yeah, there's, there's been some, I'm sure I'm forgetting some I really liked, but, uh, but yeah, there's been, I think, some really, really powerful movies. So yeah, so those are some that I've been watching and uh, usually listening to the Chicago band Whitney. That's my, uh, that's my favorite track for the moment. So those are, those are all my media recommendations. <laughs> well, I'm taking notes here. So yeah. Paul, we want to thank you. Uh, Rebecca, thank you as always. Uh, we yeah. want to thank, uh, thank everyone for listening in to the Grant Street experience. Um, without you, we wouldn't have any listeners and this wouldn't be as much fun. Um, but thanks to our guest, Paul Kendrick. And uh, thanks, Paul, for your contributions to our region and the work that you do. Um, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for everything you do for our region uh, and for Pittsburgh. Uh, it's been such an honor and a pleasure to be with you today. Awesome. Well, thanks, everyone. And uh, listen in to the Grant Street Experience, and we'll check you out on the next episode. Take care and have a great day.